Hey Quad Cities, this is Pat Militich, and we're bringing my show, Everything Combat, live to the radio, Monday, January 7th at 7 p.m. on ESPN 93.5. Join Jeff and me as we talk about all of life's battles with a special guest. Once again, that is Everything Combat, live Monday, 7 p.m. on ESPN 93.5, because life is a fight. Hey guys, this is Pat Militich. Welcome to the inaugural broadcast of Everything Combat. From the Rock and Roll Mansion at the top of Brady Street Hill. The house that Dwyer and Michaels built along with the good people of Town Square Media, who, of course, we are eternally thankful to for this opportunity to take a quickly rising podcast and marry its digital platform with traditional and free radio. Joining me, as always, in this transition is my partner in crime, the brains of the operation, the master of thought, the doer of good deeds, the visionary, a Davenport native who has come back from his time in St. Louis for this historic first broadcast launch of Everything Combat, my friend, my partner, Jeffrey Wilson. Woot, woot. I'll take that. I'll take all that. Those wonderful accolades. I will take it. Before we jump into our first guest, and we've got a lot of stuff going on right now, and we can explain that in a little bit, but sure. let's talk first about you know the premise behind Everything Combat, because our other podcast, which we don't need to talk about, but we can just say it was more domestic policy. And, heavy. Uh, and, heavy. and uh, geopolitical stuff that was a little bit heavy. So we wanted to do some motivational stuff. We wanted to be, you know, have more of an uplifting show for people. And uh, so the sport is not necessarily just contained to the sports box. No, absolutely not. I mean, obviously, you know, you're obviously a former combatant, former champion. We are going to be discussing physical combat. But like everybody in life, man, we all have different obstacles. Uh, it's more of a metaphorical combat. We all have something we're trying to overcome, get past, to get to our next level, and of course become our higher selves. And we hope to, you know, each of our guests be people who have done that very thing. Yeah, so we're going to talk to, of course, former sports champions, of current course, sports yeah. champions of all walks of life. We're going to talk to people who have overcome obesity, overcome cancer, done great things in business. You know, we've already had to Folks like Mark Taffet, who was the guy that coined the phrase pay-per-view at HBO, yes. uh, an incredible guy, a, a, a brain, a visionary. So that's that's really our goal, and we want people to be able to – basically what we want this to be is that our injection into your arm of, of life, <laughs> of what good life is supposed to be. I love it. Because we can, through our mental power – envision where we will be and, it, and we can make it come true visualization is actually very very important to uh, to achieving achieving goals in life and like you said we do have a few episodes in the archive already like pat said we do have mark taffet former uh, hbo pay-per-view executive we have ct fletcher and obviously it's huge huge i'm just a huge fan of the guy the guy's really through his motivation has really helped change the direction of my life we had uh, lisa mcclellan the sister of former uh, middleweight champion gerald mcclellan who suffered a severe brain injury in his super middleweight fight against nigel ben back in the early 90s we had on ben Askren the day uh at pretty much after his fight with our boy robbie lawler was announced um we also had a couple weeks on former wcw head author of controversy creates cash former general manager of wwe raw eric bischoff we had an incredible incredible conversation with him and, and my childhood idol idol dude absolutely dan gable that was just a mind-blowing uh conversation somebody who's excelled just on such a such a huge huge level that was a really really cool conversation so again it's not just about physical combat it's metaphorical combat we all have our fight in life especially now like my brother calls them the new shoe crew in the gym you know we're all you know starting our new year's resolutions <laughs> trying to get uh, everything off right but the I would, new shoe crew that's what lance calls them. that is beautiful shout out to lance but i, I do definitely want to give a shout out to a couple of very very imp people important people to me my my oldest daughter sagey boo what's up baby daddy loves you and of course uh, my little human, 
I won't give her a real name, but Valerie Nix, who I'm sure is sitting there right now with her controller in hand playing forklift. All right. All right, then. <laughs> yeah, I, I think it's important, though, to thank the folks here at Town Square Media. Oh, without a doubt. And Big Troy, they call him T-Roy and Jay. and Trouble T. And Becky with Town Square Media for at least giving us this opportunity to take the bat and take a couple swings at this. So, you know, as we move forward in this, we would like to, of course, be able to have the time to elaborate on people's stories. Uh, an hour is certainly uh, a tight squeeze for us. We're it not is. necessarily used to that. Right, right. that but we'll make it happen. We will make it happen. We'll work with what we have, and we've got a lot of guests lined up. In a couple of weeks, we've got a friend of mine, Micah Fink, who is a former SEAL Team 6 member. He is a guy that runs and started Heroes and Horses, which is a program taking PTSD vets, and they bring them out to Montana. They train wild Broncos. These are horses that are caught wild. The veterans train them and then ride them for hundreds of miles through very rugged, rugged mountain settings. And I can tell you there's a, there's a lot of injuries, um, a lot of hardships, and these guys are – told they have to leave their PTSD medications at home, they eat organic food, and they bond with these horses, and it is an incredible program. So I think people are going to be really excited to hear that, and Mike is, Mike is really pumped to come on also. Well, yeah, and he's got a really, really, you turned me on to it, the fascinating documentary about uh, basically his project, what he does with soldiers. I mean, not just new soldiers, he's got Vietnam, so I mean, he's, it, it's a very, very moving, actually, documentary on his program. Um, and in the next week, actually, um, we have a good friend of yours, the voice of the Octagon, Bruce Buffer. And the week after Micah, I did lock in Tito Ortiz today, so he'll be on the week after Micah. So we got a jam-packed lineup coming up, brother. And maybe we can get a chance to talk. I, I just want to tease this a little bit. <laughs> but um, Tito and I used to get along very well, and I'm, I'm honored that he's going to jump on our show. But we, hopefully we'll get a chance to talk with Tito about that that infamous um, brawl in that <laughs> London alley between he and Lee Murray, Lee Murray, a fighter that I trained, and and how that all went down, and and maybe we can just shake out the truth a little bit. I'll be anxious for you guys to get into that because I mean, obviously, a lot of uh, a lot of times gone by, a lot of water under the bridge, not so much of a big deal now. But I'll be anxious to hear Tito talk about it. You know, his recent fight against Chuck Liddell, which has received, you know, a lot of uh, some positive, some mixed negative. reviews. Mixed, mixed reviews. reviews. I guess that's what they call it, right? Mixed reviews. But um, I'll be anxious to talk to Tito, man. When I first started watching, you know, really going hard with UFC, watching you, Pat, uh, military fighting system, the Lions Den, the Young Guns. You know, Tito was really a pretty dominant light heavyweight champion and uh, i'll be anxious to talk with him man see what he's up to obviously got a lot of uh business stuff going on as well as uh, a little bit of fighting i think i heard him recently say he's going to maybe partner up with de la Hoya and become like an executive of um i was gonna say pretty boy but <laughs> golden boy productions the guy who wears uh, a Tito actually looks clothes. pretty good physically he, he does look good and quite frankly i i you know i'm not a big prognosticator but i knew that fight was going to go the way it went right uh, tito's been active he looks great chuck I mean, if, if a rough wind blows, that guy's going to sleep. And that's it's kind of it sucks for me to say that because Chuck was an absolute beast. I remember watching him in pride and just like eating punches. And now it's, you know, it all it happens to all fighters. You know, you cannot perform on that level level forever. But um, yeah, it will be cool, man. And Tito. of course, we miss the pride days. We do, man. I was actually watching some some pride the other night. I watched uh, who was it? Vitor and Vanderlei. Great fight, man. Great. Oh, no, no. It was uh, it was Vito, uh, Vanderlei and Miko, Mirko Krokop. So. Yeah, the old Pride Days definitely miss those, man. My my Croatian brother knocking out Vanderlei in that fight, kicking him in the dome with the shin bone. Yeah, it was a beautiful, beautiful KO. 
Well, yeah, we got uh, a lot of moving parts, man. When you start talking about live radio, live TV, et cetera, they're, uh, as plans will go, plans will sometimes go awry. And uh, we, we're having just a little, not necessarily difficulty, but we're trying to track down our boy George Farmer. But we always have plan B and C set up, and we're waiting George's call. But um, we, we, like I said, we have a we have a backup that's pretty strong that you know pretty well, my friend. Yeah, we're, we're going to go with Little Evil. Little Evil. Little Evil. Jens Bulver. And the stories, look, most people have not heard these stories that we're going to tell. And I'm going to force him to tell these stories. And <laughs> we're going to have a lot of fun because there was some very intense stuff that that went into uh, I, training him. I, it was it was like a scorpion. It was a scorpion. You, you pet one end and you don't pet the other. Let's put I mean, way. you guys, I mean, it's obviously, anybody who knows Pat and the military fighting system, like you guys were just straight Spartans, man. I mean, from from Chen's to you to Little Evil or to uh, to Matt. I mean, come on, dude. Well, there were Tim. ninety. There were over ninety. I think 92, 92 young men and women that made it to televised careers, and I think fourteen world champs. And so there was a ton of people. We're talking about having a uh, a get together, a family reunion, so to speak. That would be amazing. This coming summer, which would would be incredible to document. As a matter of fact, speaking of document, we're going to have to get our boy Justin Holstein from Marigold Resources down there to check that out. Do a little recording for us. That's our boy. But yeah, man, I'm um, you know, I, this is like I said, one of those conversations, or you know, one of these kind of shows, Pat. That, you know, it's um, like I talked about our, one of our former guests, um, C. T. Fletcher. He provided for me what I like to call kind of an alchemical moment, man. I I my my the direction of my life. I know it sounds crazy, just like a YouTube off a YouTube video, but my direction of my life really began to change speaking to that guy and i want to be able to spread those kind of stories to people you know who hear our show because like i said life is a fight and a lot of people are going through a lot of things like you said whether it's obesity drug abuse getting a business off the ground whatever it is so um again man i and i'm and we never know and that's the thing that it's important to bring up that we never know what somebody's going through right now in their life no. so try and be kind to one another man absolutely be, well, if you can if kind. you can bear it if you can bear it and again i don't want you know i posted this a while ago I really want to thank you, Champ. Um, you know, my my show that I started, it's me speaking to you. Pat was my first guest, had him on like three or four times. And, uh, I, you know, I was I was shocked the fact that I even got him on. You know, everybody was like, there's no way you're going to get Pat. I wound up having on him four or five times after I think the fourth or fifth one asked me to do another show with him, which we've done. And it's just, I want to thank you, brother. Whatever you saw. Three years we, of broadcasting magic together. We have been, man. We have been. So it's like, again, I want to thank you because that's brought us to where we here right now. We are right now, and um, I just can't thank you enough, man. Seriously, it's been a fun ride, my friend. Been a fun ride. As so. they say, real talk. But let's uh, let's take a quick break. Let's get um, get Chen's on the phone, and um, we will be right back. As Chuck Lurie said, in two and two. Why are you guys looking so chipper? We just got our noodles tossed. Excuse me? That's right. We just got our noodles tossed at Grinders and Spaghetti House. Oh, I get it. You mean they tossed your noodles in sauce. Not just any sauce, the best sauce around. Meat sauce, marinara, Alfredo sauce. You know, Grinders has great lunch specials starting at $2.99, and it goes 11 till 2, Monday through Saturday. It's Don't Hassle Us, We're Local. Talk sports with your favorite foursome, T-Roy, Japer, Serge, and you. Weekdays from noon to 2 on ESPN 93.5. Gobo Productions presents One Night of Queen. Oh, we will rock you. Since 
forming in 2002, Gary Mullen and the Works have performed to sell-out audiences all over the world. And now they're back in the USA for a brand new tour. One Night of Queen is a spectacular live concert recreating the look, sound, and showmanship of arguably the greatest rock band of all time. You'll hear classic Queen numbers including We Will Rock You, Fat Bottom Girls, Another One Bites the Dust, Bohemian Rhapsody, and We Are the Champions. One Night of Queen, performed by Gary Mullen and the Works. This show will rock you. All right, everything combat has returned, and we should have little evil Jens Pulver calling in here momentarily. He is uh, now an esports star, Jeffrey. He is goes man. from goes from UFC, the first UFC 155 pound world champion, to to an esports star. And esports is something that is absolutely blowing up. They're filling arenas in Asia. They're filling soccer stadiums for people to watch. People play video games against each other. <laughs> I actually, uh, whatever, I had this deal, idea like years ago to do that, to have like Madden games, boxing games, but it's cool that they've done it. And yeah, uh, Chen's Twitch game is is strong. Uh, he, D- Chen's, Demetrius Johnson, Rampage Jackson um, have really, it's a cool thing when you see, you know, cats get out of the fight game and they stay relevant. They stay, they find a way to, you know, stay kind of in a different kind of game, kind of morph their talents. And um, yeah, there's a lot of money in, um, in the gaming that guy ninja his name is ninja he's like one of the top forklift players fortnite is what it's called but uh he made 10 million dollars last year 10 million my if thumbs don't move quick enough I, I i'd starve well no, well yeah you gotta they, and the, the worst part about it is a lot of those guys use the hotkeys on keyboards so it's like it's even worse than controllers but um yeah it's it's i was actually talking and we'll talk to the boys afterwards about possibly streaming our show on twitch as well because i definitely want to start reaching out more to kind of the youth demographic with some of our stories and such and twitch is a, a very you know perfect um perfect avenue for that and i think we've got jens pulver on the line jens are you there i certainly am i forgot well, the right number all <laughs> <laughs> well speak up a little bit. how you doing jens i'm doing good my friend how you doing i'm i'm doing good i'm here with jeffrey also and of course you know him and it was nice to see you the other day at the bettendorf pleasant valley wrestling meet good to, good to be there you were sitting on the wrong side of the gym and i had to correct you <laughs> well it wasn't the wrong side of the gym. It was the correct side. Oh, dude. Kids, no. Now, I'm in the TV district. My kids go to the Pleasant Valley School District. It's interchangeable. So. It's interchangeable. <laughs> just just so you know, you can send your kid to Bettendorf. Just my as, and, address is Bettendorf, but my, the kids go to PV. Your, so poor, your was, poor fourth grade son sitting there, you know, <laughs> with all the old Bettendorf wrestlers around him. We're all taunting him, telling him he's got to go to Bettendorf. And he's yep. he's having he's having none of it none of it. You've got him you've got him convinced and brainwashed. Well, I don't know if it's so much brainwashed. It just that's where you're going to go because I didn't realize it takes so much to get this whole coaching certificate. Like you got to take like class college classes to become a coach. Well, that whole criminal background check comes into play, doesn't it? Uh-oh. Yeah, well, that's not <laughs> it. Don't get that started. I know I'm good there, but I, <laughs> no. But you have to do like you have to do courses, so. I figured, like old school, I could just pop in and be a, you know, just be a volunteer coach, come in and help out and stuff like that. And so I was gonna help out the high school this year, but now nah, you gotta, you gotta do about a semester of of uh, courses before you can 
get in there. So and you're going to do that, right? I've been fingerprinted. I mean, I think they still count. <laughs> of course, right? you've been fingerprinted. No, but so you're going to take the classes. You're going to become a coach here in the Quad Cities over at Pleasant Valley or Bettendorf, right? Yeah, so I'm gonna I'm going to be a coach at, at Pleasant Valley. I think the Pleasant kids can benefit a great deal from that. I think that's awesome. It took it took a little bit, but I think it's time. I mean, the one thing like I always said to you, you know, coming up when I was a fighter, one day it's gonna be my turn. It's gonna be my turn to give back and become a coach, like the one that saved my life, that that got me out here, that got me to be a part of this team. You know what I mean? And so that's come full circle and in a in a in a positive way, I'm older now, and it's time for me to be a coach. So right, right. after well, two years of sulking, I'm finally ready <laughs> to be the next Pat Militich and have you know and and try and I want to have a couple world champions. I want to be able to coach somebody and you know and then coach and give back and coach wrestling like you know it was those high school and junior high wrestling coaches that saved my life growing up. And if it wasn't for them. I know I wouldn't be. So. You know, it's important that you say that because, I mean, you and I both technically kind of came from, you know, being raised by our mothers, and, and certainly yep. our coaches were those male role models that we absolutely needed that, that molded our lives, the guys that we did our best to emulate, and, and they, they really were pivotal guys. No, they they did everything for me. And when I came from a world that had, you know, a father that I almost wish would have been a no-show, but he showed up enough to cause the bruises and the punishment. You know, it's just – these people, they took time out of their day just to, to coach me. And I wasn't even their kid, but they treated me like I was. And they, and I remember there was nothing more addicting than just going out there and performing and seeing the smile on the coach's faces, the smile on my mother's face, the, the crowd that goes up and talks to your mom and says, man, you kids did phenomenal. And you got to, you could feel that pride. Right. I was addicted to that, and I had to have that. And so I continued on to the fighting world. I moved out here. And I met you, and you know the same thing, man. There's nothing like when you see the smile on your mom's face, the mm -hmm. nervousness that they have, and they want to see you out there and perform. And you get to just go back and you get to look at it. You just, I mean, you're never too old for that. And that's the one thing now is it's my turn to give back. It's my turn to become you, you know, a mentor and a coach who have brought so many opportunities for kids that were coming from, you know, again, families like mine or wherever they came from. But you know, that were looking for that guidance, looking for that, that mentor that they could look up to. And, you know what I mean? I still, <laughs> I still remember the first day, Mr. Bill teacher put me in the old, uh, the, the, um, what do you have? The, uh, forerunner? What you, what was that? Oh, my, my old Toyota the Land old Cruiser? School. The Land Cruiser. Yeah. Remember the seat? <laughs> yeah. The, the seat, seat wasn't, the seat wasn't, the over? seat wasn't bolted in. You had to seat belt yourself <laughs> into the seat to hold the seat in with you. <laughs> I remember, I was like, yeah, I should have Mr. Militich. And then, you know what I mean, as we became friends, you know, later on we became friends. It's like, well, the Mr. left, and then it was just Pat, and then it was dumbass, and I became a little evil bastard. And it just, you know, but the family was <laughs> growing. So my point is, you know, it's just now that I'm done soaking and I've accepted that it's done, you know what I mean, the athletic side, the fighting side is done, it's, I'm ready, you know, I'm ready, I'm ready to become another version of you. I'm ready to do what you did for us. Well, you're certainly capable of that because of your background, your knowledge, everything else. And one thing, you know, as you move forward teaching kids and things, you know, I remember being able to just um, not cuss. And so we actually are on the radio right now, so you <laughs> want to make sure that you don't cuss a whole lot or n not at all so we don't get any uh, – 
don't get any fines against the uh, station or ourselves, my friend. On our first night, of course. <laughs> hey, Chance, I wanted to ask you, man, because the, the show, you know, the premise of the show, Everything Combat, you know, it isn't just about kind of physical combat, even though, you know, you guys could obviously tell big stories on that. It's kind of, you know, a larger metaphorical um, everything combat. Life is a fight. We all have stuff we go through. And I'm curious, man, when we get, you know, we've had a few people on, and I, obviously we were going to have you on down the line, but, you know, circumstances as they are, here you are. What was... What were some of the obstacles? And you kind of just alluded to it a little bit with your home life. What were some of the obstacles that you had to become or that you had to go through to become, you know, the person you are, the champion you are? Because it seems to me, man, that most people who excel in fighting or anything in life, man, there's usually there's not necessarily a demon they're running from or somebody they're trying to prove something to. What was what was kind of your lot in life that made you uh, that kind of stepped your game up to become the champion that you were? No, that was it. It was I remember I was. 16 years old, 15, 16 years old, and I was in the bathroom, and my dad had just punched the heck out of me and, and beat up my mom, and we were both sitting there, and we were crying, and she was cleaning me up, and, and I remember I jumped up, and I looked him dead in the eye. I said, one day, man, I go, one day, I'm going to get so famous, I'm going to tell everybody about you, man. I go, I'm going to tell everybody what you did in a world where, again, someone could be broke down on the side of the road. Do no fault you own. Somebody just drives by, you know, people just drive by, drive by. Cause they got their own lives. They got whatever they're doing. You know, I mean, they're consumed with what they're doing. And there's, I mean, that's what it is. But to get into a position where people will stop, not only stop to shake your hand and, and, and meet you, but will wait in line and will watch and, and come in and watch and listen to what you have to say, that's such a huge gift. And so I set out a long time ago. First, it was through wrestling, and I was a two-time state champion and a runner-up. And then I went into college. I promised my mom I'd graduate college. And I started, you know, from that point on, I was like, holy cow. I seen Pat Militich, Townsend Saunders, these wrestlers, Randy Couture. I'm like, oh, my goodness. I can, I want to do this. I always thought I was going to be a boxer. But the reality was, you know, I seen this. and going, holy, this is it. This is like boxing with training wheels. Because if I don't like it, I can take you down. And it was just a no-brainer for me to, to keep continuing and, and do this. So I kept going after it and going after it and, you know, even winning the world title, I wasn't done yet. And I was hell-bent on it. Nothing was going to stop me. And it, like I said, it got me on a train, and I was out. It took me two and a half days, and I showed up in Iowa. And I remember I just threw down my bags, and I said, I'm ready. I'm ready, Mr. Militich. <laughs> I was ready to prove something. And I wanted to change my name because my name is Jens Pulver. My father's name was Jens Pulver, and I wanted it to mean something else. I wanted to give my mother and my brothers and sisters something to smile about. And something to be proud of, and you know what I mean. I wanted to be, I wanted to be able to set goals for my little brother. Who, the minute I started fighting, Abel was there, and he never left my side throughout my entire career. Yeah. And that was my goal. And when I made that documentary, you can literally go back and look. When I made the documentary, Driven. Awesome documentary too, started, man. Awesome documentary. Thank you very much. The losing streak started after that because I didn't have that middle finger anymore. I didn't have that. I did it. And I remember, I knew it was big when my dad called one time, and he threatened to he threatened to kill me after the BJ Penn fight. Said he was going to kill me, and um, we just got into a long conversation. And he asked, and then I go, you know, that's the last time he and I spoke until one day I did that documentary. He called and goes, "Good Lord," he goes, "How famous are you?" Goes, <laughs> he goes, "No, I did." He goes, "He goes, I can't go anywhere." Because what he told me he goes, "I can't go anywhere." People, go, that's him, that's him, that's that's his dad. And I was like, I told you. I told you, man, you should have never beat me. I told you I was going to do this. And after that, the irony is, you know, we did become friends later on. 
and we got to where we could talk on the phone. I could never have them around me. I could never have them around my kids and my family, but we did repair. A sort of reconciling. We did reconcile. And so it was ironic because, and this will be the first time I say it, and I'll try not to cry, but this will be the first time I say it. So I got a phone call one day. I was in the store, and I answered it, and they go, hello. And I go, hello. And they go, yeah, this is so-and-so from the coroner's office. They go, stop. I go, stop, 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 stop. I go, I go, I'm in public. He go, hold on a second. And I start bouncing around. I don't know what to do. And I'm like, what? And they go, well, we found your, your father. I go, I go, what happened? And they said, well, your father, your father uh, passed away. He died in a, in a fire. And I'm like, oh, man. And I'm jumping up. I'm like, oh, my God. I don't know what to do. And my wife's looking at me. She's like, and people now in line are starting to watch me. I got tears in my face. She's like, go, get, get, get out. And I was like, okay. So I took off. And the irony the reason why i tell that story is the reason why they called me is because i was the only phone number he had in his phone wow because he and i we went full circle man where you know in the beginning we didn't have it was a, a, this relationship where i told you one day i'm gonna do this documentary to where the documentary is made to where there was forgiveness to where we were talking to when he passed away and they found the phone and i was the only phone number and the lady goes i know who you are you know, I know the situation, but this is the only phone number he had. Wow. And that was the phone number I had. No one, I never told this to anybody until right now. That's heavy, but, brother. That is heavy. Yeah, so it's, it's, it, it just goes back to forgiveness. <clears throat> and I'm glad that he and I were able to have those conversations. And I'm glad that we, I, I even let him listen. I got to talk to my son, you know, on the phone and stuff like that. And just the whole reason why he could never be around me was because, you know, people that drink, he was a blackout drunk and he could get really violent, like real fast. And he could never figure it out how it happened. So I couldn't have him around my wife and kids because I just told him, I go, you'll bring me back to that eighth grader. And I go, this eighth grader now can slow down. I go, I'd bury you. I go, it wouldn't be, you know what I mean? Right. It would be safe for you or me. But we did have that conversation. We did have that where we were talking and he could call me whenever he wanted to. And I always picked it up and I always talked to him and, you know what I mean? And, well, and that's what this so. this this show is about. I mean, obviously, people being able to find peace, people finding yep. finding peace within themselves when they've had tough lives is is really important. You've obviously done that, and your wife's played a big part in that also. And we're going to come to that here pretty quick, but we're gonna we're gonna uh, we're gonna go ahead and. Uh, well, unfortunately, it's you know it's like I said, live radio. Chins, this is awesome, dude, and we're actually going to pick this conversation up. Y'all weren't uh, ready for that one. Uh, yeah, that was that was heavy. <laughs> that blew us away. And, uh, and, and honestly, y'all weren't ready for that one. That was that I was kept, a fantastic teaser, man. Because I've honestly been wanting to talk to you forever. But we and we're going to talk tornado chasing and a bunch of other stuff we used to do. <laughs> oh, but we're going to do that in the next God. episode. We got George. We, we George Foreman has called us and is ready to go, Chen. So oh, we're you got to do it. That's the man, the myth, the legend. Hey, I love ab- you guys. Thank you so much. Yeah. Love you, buddy. Talk to you soon. Take care, Chen. So right, from, from UFC good. champion to world heavyweight champion, we will have George Foreman back right after this break. ESPN 93.5 is KJOC Bettendorf Quad Cities from the Sheedy Family Chiropractic Studio. 
QuadHelpWanted.com presents the world's worst boss, the one who posts jobs on huge national job sites looking for anyone with a pulse. We'll just call him Dave. Diane, word around the office is you're thinking about quitting. Dave, I'm sorry you had to find out from someone else. I got... It's really hard to find great employees like you, so I'd like to make you a counteroffer. Dave, why are you pulling up your shirt? What is that? It's a tattoo of your face on my lower back. So what do you say? Diane? Don't be a Dave. Find your perfect local employee at QuadHelpWanted.com. Local jobs that work. QuadHelpWanted.com presents the world's worst boss. The one who posts jobs on huge national job sites looking for anyone with a pulse. We'll just call him Dave. Alexis, I've reviewed your resume online and I think you're very professional, punctual, a fantastic listener, and I believe you'd be a great fit at our company. Dave, we've talked about this. I will not be your employee. I'm your therapist. Is this reverse psychology? No, Dave. Does that mean yes? We're out of time, Dave. Don't be a Dave. Find your perfect local employee at quadhelpwanted.com. Local jobs that work. This Columbus Day weekend, it's Cole's Friends and Family Sale. Take an extra 20% off and get women's denim for just $15.99. Boots only $35.99. And the big one bath towel, just $2.99. Plus, get the lowest prices of the season on Levi's. You'll get Cole's cash, too. Earn it on everything, spend it on anything. Thursday through Monday at Kohl's. Select styles, 20% off or valid October 5th through 9th with promo code FRIENDS20. Some exclusions apply. See store Kohl's.com for details. ESPN 93.5 is KJOC Bettendorf Quad Cities from the Sheedy Family Chiropractic Studio. All right, guys, we are back. Everything combat. We have Big George Foreman, I believe. This is George. Oh, my goodness. It is the Big George Foreman. How are you, sir? This is Pat Militich and Jeffrey Wilson. Yeah, life is great. Fantastic. Great, great. And I will say this, that you have the most unique voice message on your phone (laughs) I have ever heard in my life, sir. (laughs) That is quite creative. Yeah. Uh, but I'll, life is good. You gotta leave a message if you're good. Yeah, no, <laughs> it, it was an interesting little chronicle of your of your of your life, you know, from kind of not beginning to end, obviously, because you're alive and well. But it very interesting, kind of, uh, you know, when, you know, the fight with Muhammad, et cetera, et cetera. But again, ladies and gentlemen, we are talking to the one, the only George Foreman, Olympic gold medalist in 1968, two-time world heavyweight champion, and as an individual who was 45 years old. He threw it on Michael Moore at 45 years old, a southpaw, former light heavyweight champion, heavyweight champion. He took care of him in the 10th round, knocked him out, inspired so many. George Foreman, thank you so, so very much for coming on, sir. You have been, wow. You, you traded leather with Muhammad Ali. Amazing story, amazing human being. Thank you so, so very much, sir. This is wonderful for me. I can tell you that. Now, well, the, whole, the whole feeling to this show, George, is, is people who have overcome hardship in life and who've accomplished great things, and obviously you qualify. So, you know, <laughs> a lot of people don't know your early history from the from the Fifth Ward in Houston, a very rough upbringing, a very dangerous place. A lot of people lost their lives in that area of Houston. And uh, then you were, you were saved by the Job Corps. At least that was the initial part of your life with uh, LBJ founding the Jobs Corps and, and you finding, finding a lot of inspiration in that. I was just telling my friends yesterday, as a matter of fact, how life was uh, 
1965, I got on an airplane, and I was scared. Here it is, 2019, I'm still afraid <laughs> when I get on an airplane. So it's, life is pretty much the same, but they treated me so nice. My first airplane trip, they gave me a Coca-Cola and uh, asked me what I want more and then told me to pick up my tray. But outside the windows, it was a prop propeller plane. Well, I, I always trust the, the prop planes a little bit more, to be honest with you, George, because when the jet engines stop, they tend to fall. There's a little better glide pattern with the, with the prop planes. Ah, uh, now you tell me. See, I told you I was already afraid. <laughs> well, George, I mean, like again, Pat said, man, a lot of things, a lot of what this show is about is overcoming obstacles, taking, being, getting ourselves out of our own way to take ourselves to the next level. And, you know, nobody really does that by themselves and through your job core experience which obviously helped change the direction of your life mr brodus if you don't mind speak to how key and essential he was to getting you in the boxing game and how he helped change your life yeah i'm uh, i'm in a job core center uh in oregon grants pass oregon and i was pretty much a bully and all the kids listening to uh uh cassius clay then fighting floyd patterson and after the fight was over, I didn't pay much attention. They On the radio, they said, George, you are such a big bully. If you think you're so tough, why don't you become a boxer? I said, I'll show you. I went to Pleasanton, California, and someone told me as I was walking through the day room, that's the boxing coach right there. And I ran right into him, Doc Brodus. I said, hey, I want to be a boxer. He said, well, you're big enough, George. And you're, <laughs> he didn't call me George. You're big enough, and you're ugly enough. Come on down to the gym. And I went down to the gym, and I never had anyone to believe in me that much in my life. He kept telling me, you can be champion. You can do this. You can do that. You can be an Olympic gold medalist. I thought, this guy's crazy. <laughs> but if I told you I had big plans for my, my life, I'd be lying. It was him. Doc Brothers had big plans for George Foreman's life. And he lived uh, to see me winning a, a gold medal. He was in Mexico City. He carried my bucket in uh, Kingston, Jamaica. Also carried my bucket when I recaptured the title uh, uh, from Michael Moore. Can you believe it? That's amazing. And, and all the way, I've never been. That's what I, I'm always said about uh, athletes. They we should be the most uh, loyal people of all because there's so many people who've done so much for us absolutely a lot of inspiration out there for all of us who are athletes and you know i watched several times your match i've, I've seen it over the years against the russian in the championship when you won the gold medal in the 68 olympics and talk about a, a severe beating for an amateur boxing match it was it was horrifying to watch what you did to that russian ionis chapoulis october 27 1968 I remember I was really giving it to him, but then in the middle of the second round, I said, if I don't get him, I'm going to faint the la the next round because the altitude was so high. Yeah, Mexico I just City. Didn't have, I just didn't have any more win. <laughs> I just couldn't take it. He didn't know he saves me that night. <laughs> yeah, because he quit He quit on the stool, didn't he? No, no, no. They stopped the boxing match. He was bleeding just, profusely. Uh, but I just didn't have much left. I'm telling you, that that altitude in Mexico City, we were supposed to train and get acclimated in Denver, Colorado. Denver, Colorado was nothing compared to Mexico City. Wow. Uh, 
after one round, you just didn't have any more. And the air is very start, dry. It's like it's like yeah. And you start thinking, I'm going to die. I'm going to die. <laughs> so you you also had a chance, you know, through your job corps experience, uh, you actually had a chance to meet Lyndon Baines Johnson. What was that? I mean, coming from where you came from, you know, the expectations maybe weren't so high, and here you are winning gold medals, and you're meeting the president in the Oval Office. What was that like? You know, when I first uh, heard of uh, Lyndon Johnson. Truly, I went into the job court, and I thought he was the president of Texas. I didn't really realize <laughs> he was the president of all the United States. And then I wore a cap in style that year. All the youngsters, we wore an LBJ studs. We were cool. <laughs> then to be invited to the White House, shake his hand, make friends with him, and even invite personally invited me back to a, at a, to a state dinner, uh, a little while later, so I got to be close with him. He sat there and looked at me as if to say, look, I passed the baton to you now. You got to run some yourself with the eyes. I didn't understand it, but I do now. Very interesting. And, uh, you know, as you moved into the professional ranks and fought a lot of huge names, one of them being Smoking Joe Frazier. Smoking Joe Frazier was actually, George, I'll, I'll, I'll let you know, was my favorite boxer growing up. I was a little kid. Sitting on the couch at home eating popcorn. I remember watching you, Ali, Smoking Joe, all those guys fight. But you actually, for as uh, a scary a human being as you were when you were a younger man, and and please don't hit me now either, um, <laughs> that, uh, <laughs> that 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 you were afraid of a guy uh, who was. I mean, he was a smaller guy than you. I mean, he wasn't a small man, but he was smaller than you. Uh, besides that left dynamite hook that he had, that you you boy. you were actually afraid of him. Look, the first boxing match, I went to a pay-per-view. Doc Brothers and another couple of guys took me to see the pay-per-view match of Joe Frazier, Jimmy, uh, Buster Mathis in Madison Square Garden. Ah. And it was really to open up uh, the new Madison Square Garden at that time. And he was this little guy, kept attacking this big guy. And I thought, (laughs) man. They wanted me to be champ, but I hope he dies before I get a chance to fight for it. <laughs> I'd never seen anything like that. It was like a, somebody, someone unleashed a monster. And I didn't want to fight Joe Frazier. Buster Mathis didn't, and no one else did. And I was live in Madison Square Garden when uh, he fought Muhammad Ali the first time. He just wouldn't give up. He kept coming. Well, you so knocked him down. What would you knock him down, five or six times? Yeah, I was scared. That's what it is. The, <laughs> the greatest thing a fighter can have is fear. I was so afraid of Joe Frazier. I knocked him down. I said, oh, he's mad now. <laughs> he got up. I knocked him down. I said, what did I do that for? He's going to kill me. And I knocked him down again. I didn't, and it wasn't power. It was just fear. Well, and, and doing some of the show prep, it was very interesting because, uh, you know, you kind of emulated somebody, somewhat of your persona with the late great heavyweight champion Sonny Liston. And I remember, um, you know, you were mean mugging Joe at the press conference or whatever, and you were like, man, he's shortered me, and I hope he doesn't look down at my legs because they are knocking. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right in the ring I got in. I'm, I'm telling you, we uh, Archie Moore told me, stare him down. Look in there. Don't, don't show him you're not afraid. Psych him out. And that's when I realized, man, if he looks down at my knees, he's going to see them shaking. <laughs> I, I didn't want, you know, the, the idea is to stare him down so he'd drop his eyes. I didn't want him to drop his face that night. 
<laughs> I was I was literally afraid of Joe Frazier. I thought if you hit him, he liked it. If, if you you know uh, if you missed him, he just got upset. Well, no, you, there was no way. I, it was just one of those things I had to do. Well, you definitely hit him. You definitely hit him, and it was obviously you know I wasn't alive at that time, but seeing it back, I was like, whoa, you just dismantled such a such a dominant champion. And let me ask you, looking back, you know I'm a huge obviously boxing fan, but Mike Tyson had a documentary as well, and champ, you know Pat, you might be able to chime on this as well. There's a obviously with fighting, there's there's a huge fear component. There almost has to be. And listening yeah. to Mike Tyson say, as I walk to the ring, I'm scared. I've dreamed of this man beating me. The closer I get to the ring, the more invincible I become. Once that bell rang, did did that fear still was that still a part of your 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 fighting? You know that night, or once that bell rang, you were like, "It's on." Oh yeah, the fear stays there, especially for me. Uh, uh, I remember those girls walking by, and I was thinking, "I don't want to see them again. Don't come by here again." Because every time that means you had one more round to fight. <laughs> I hated, I hated to see those girls walk past you. <laughs> round two, round three. I said, "Oh no!" And a lot of times you get to be, you see them walk past you in round six, and you want to cry. You really <laughs> wanted to cry. <laughs> so, I wanted those things to be over. That's why I sought so many knockouts. You wanted to get paid by the second, not by the minute. <laughs> I just wanted to get those things over. Right. So now, out of all the all the all the monsters that you fought, and these are, you think of the legendary days that you took part in and were one of the monsters during those days. Which man, out of all the men that you fought or sparred with, were the was the hardest puncher that you ever trained or fought? Uh, Sonny Liston. Oh, that's I what I was. Had, yeah, I was I wondering. I had the feeling that he was playing with me, and I couldn't do anything about it. Because everybody know me as the big brute. Here come George. Here he comes. But if you had seen Sonny Liston and George Foreman sparring, you would have thought I was Sugar Ray Robinson. <laughs> you were you were doing some dancing, huh? I would not stand. That was the only man that I couldn't that uh he could stand up to me. I couldn't make him budge at all. And after a while, he hit me with that heavy jab. I had to move. I had to move. That's a scary human if he could do that with you. I said he's not going to catch me. Oh, I had footwork. Someone should have filmed those things. They were <laughs> where do George learn to dance like that? <laughs> <laughs> Got light on your feet real quick. Well, uh, right, light on my feet. I'm telling you. Well, champ, we we have a little less time than we originally have, so I want to obviously fit in as many questions as I can. And you know, one of the hugest ones for me, and the man is world renowned. He was beloved. You fell in love with him as well after hating his guts after that after that 1974 fight, October 30th. What was it like? Two two part question here. What was it like facing Muhammad Ali at that time? And in retrospect, why is Muhammad the greatest of all time? You, you, when I got in the ring with Muhammad, I thought, boy, this is going to be the easiest fight of my life. It was really? The first time, first time I'd gotten into the ring totally without fear. I've always been afraid to get in the ring. I thought, I'm going to clean this guy out <laughs> in no time. And you look over on the corner, he's moving around. He looked like a baby doll. <laughs> that guy. He's so he, pretty. He right. And that, that was the curse on him. You thought, man, you, and then you look back at the fight and look at his record. Nobody has ever knocked this guy out. How in the world did I figure I'm going to get him in one or two rounds? But I never was afraid of him. And that was the curse because you don't protect yourself when you're not afraid. And he, uh, and then why so many people were in love with him, I figure. 
I'm telling you, he was a walking show. The greatest show <laughs> on earth, you see him coming down the street and your heart starts pumping. Wow. This was the most exciting human being I'd ever met. And I was going to try to kill him in the ring. I remember he wouldn't even look at me. I never saw him in Africa. We never had a press conference together, anything. Yeah. So someone had told him, you know, you got to psych him out. And that was his only chance. In the ring was the first time we met together, you know, before the fight. And I stared at him like a horse. Then finally he raised his eyes up real sheepish and said, George, you 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 were a kid in high school when I fought Mr. Columbia. <laughs> but and, and I was staring so mean and I almost burst out laughing because I wanted to tell him, man, I never spent a day in high school in my whole life. <laughs> Someone had awesome. told him wrong. Someone had told him wrong that was gonna psych me out, but he never psyched me out. We never met. We never had a press conference together in Africa. Our camps were miles apart. We never met until uh, the hour of the fight. That's interesting because yeah. in, in leading up to that fight, you had got you had su- suffered a cut, I believe, and were you had to you had to heal up in Zaire because the the dictator of the country, uh, Mobuto, would not let you guys leave because they had invested so much time and money and resources into making sure that that fight happened, that it, it, he was a dictator. He was like, oh, you guys are oh, not Mr. leaving this country. Mr. Foreman, please don't leave us. We are country <laughs> in this. We have problems here. If you leave, people are going to think we couldn't do it. Oh, Mr. Foreman, please, I got this big gash over my eye now. But you can beat him. Everybody knows you can beat him. And that's called, I, I said, well, I don't know. But please, we're begging you not to leave. And I thought after a while, this doesn't sound like a plea to all they're begging me. This almost sounds like a demand. He's telling you. He's telling you. You're in a nice way. Your plane's probably going to go down if you try and leave. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, you're probably going to go down before you get to the airport. There you go. Yeah, but, that's that's. But we, and so I had ten days where I couldn't sweat to let the scar eat, and I didn't use stitches. I wanted to go to uh, uh, one of the other Belgian countries, but I didn't. They no planes left with me. Well, and, but I had to put butterflies on my eyes to heal it. And after 10 days, then I could start back sweating again. But I couldn't spar. I had to do nothing but road work around the track. Wow. Running, running, running. I, I must have been in the most super condition of my life and running. I should have been a marathoner after that. <laughs> you know, I find so it no so- one I'm could sorry. spar with me. They were afraid they may knock the cut open again. So yeah. I yeah, I found that interesting, too, that that cut, you know, delayed the fight, obviously, so long. But I find it fascinating that you said there was no real, you didn't fall for any psychological ploys. Um, no, we never saw each other. Well, we I'm just saying, I, I was from the standpoint of when you guys got over to Africa, and, and Ali, like, could have ran for president and probably won, because he really galvanized the natives, the whole Ali Boumaye. That that in no way affected you. That's so fascinating. Look, every time I'd leave out of the hotel, there was George Foreman Boumaye, too. Oh, no, okay, okay. We just didn't hear much about that. I hear you. Cool. No, I mean, you know, that was uh, some of the things that they, they said. I heard I heard later on that people said, I brought a dog into Africa, and the people didn't like that. I said, man, these people have lions and tigers. How are they going to be afraid of a German shepherd dog? Well, yeah, that was the whole thing because I mean, apparently they got the— got hyenas, hyenas and everything running around. Those people weren't afraid of my dogs. They right. let me do tricks, throw sticks and— Catch the sticks and oh, those people are dog fanciers. Well, come to think of it, you had you had pet lions and tigers too, didn't you? 
Yep. I figured, man, I, <laughs> yep. After I lost to Mohammed, I said, I better move up in pets. I'm getting a lion and tiger. That's how, how were you afraid around those animals? My goodness. No, I wasn't afraid of anything. That was my problem. I also, <laughs> like, you know, uh, attack anything I was afraid of, I would attack. I find that so fascinating, George, because the George we've all seen, you know, in you know, after your, just the the new George, the the reinvented George, the pleasant George. I just it's hard for me to reconcile like the old school George who was just so mean and stuff with the clearly just like nice, very humble, pleasant person you are now. Um, floating through because our time is ticking away. You know, like again, part of this show is the moments that help change our lives. The yes. end of that Jimmy Young fight, you had an amazing, amazing transformation. Um, people were saying, you know, it was the heat, et cetera, et cetera. What what was going on in that locker room after your fight with Jimmy Young and how that affected your life? In a split second, I'm trying to cool off. I was dead and alive again. Evidently, they picked me off the floor, laid me on the table, uh, and I saw blood on my head and my forehead. And there I am screaming and kissing everybody in the room. Jesus Christ is coming alive in me. I kissed everybody. And uh, they would say, what is wrong with this George Foreman now? <laughs> I left. I left Africa, and I couldn't understand what had happened to me. I'd experienced death, and I didn't believe in religion. I thought that was for kooks and poor people. But I started preaching on the street corners. For 10 years, I became nothing but an evangelist. And then that profound event in my life, I became broke. I had to come back to boxing. And, and what years. was besides the money— you wanted to do something else, and you wanted to do something for other people was really a big motivation in that, right? Well, I had opened up the George Foreman Youth and Community Center, my brother. Right. Out, and, and I was taking care of kids. And these kids, you know, I tell them, you got to do this, you got to do this, and uh, you got to get money to buy this. They said, we don't have. I said, ask your father. We don't have a father. And all of a sudden, the place I opened for kids to hang out, come to find out, I, so I just charged them a dollar uh, if you uh uh, six years old, you can get in for six dollars a year, seven seven dollars a year. That's awesome. And I'd sit and hang out with these kids and become friends and listen to them. And so I went out to earn some money for speaking at a church one time in near Georgia. And the guy, after three days, said, "Help George with his kids." And that was the first time I felt it was a shame for me to be asking these people. And I used to have swimming pools and Rolls Royce. What, do I, what was I doing begging these people for the little money they had? I said, I'm going to go back to boxing. I'm going to be heavyweight champ of the world. That's how I'll get my money. I just <laughs> want to close that youth center. Those kids didn't have any, any other place to go. That's an incredible story. And at 40 years old, you jump back into professional boxing with a mission to win the heavyweight title again. And along that run, I have to tie this into, because we're in eastern Iowa, western Illinois, and there was a guy that was a boxer here named Frank Gator Lux, who you, Yo! who you fought in, in, I believe, Anchorage, Alaska, early in your That's comeback. Right. That's and, right. That's and, right. And I loved Frank Gator Lux. I kind of looked up to him, to be honest with you, George, and you smashed the guy. <laughs> you know what? The good thing about Frank Gator... <laughs> He wasn't afraid of me. I didn't have to. Buy, I didn't have to run after him. He was right there in front of me. I said, "Huh? What?" <laughs> I mean, a guy was not a, afraid of me, and that was the deal. There's two things: he and Joe Frazier who weren't afraid of me. I didn't have to worry about the rope or dope or anything. Well, and I'm gonna have to. I'm gonna have to express my little bit bit of heat with you too, George, because on March 26th in Caracas, Venezuela. You did my cousin Kenny Norton wrong. I've uh, related to <laughs> related to Mr. Norton. God rest him. But uh, what was that light fight, my cousin? Why'd you do him so wrong? 
you know what? I looked across the ring at Ken Norton. That was a different thing. This guy had muscles all in his oh, yeah. eyes. <laughs> no one, no one want to fight people like that. You always look for an easy touch. And I said, man, he's as big as I am, plus drained off in muscles. I was afraid of him for good reason. Yeah, he was he was definitely pretty jacked. And um, well, again, we're we're sort of limited on time, George. So I hate to keep to just bust through. Let's these get questions. to the title. Yeah. So again, man, inspiring the world. You actually started your comeback in 1987 at 38 against Steve Zowski. Okay. But on November 5th, 1994, 45 years old, the great Jim Lampley, who if you can put in a GERD word for us, we're trying to get him on the show as well. You pretty much predicted Michael's going to stand right in front of me and let me knock him out. Talk about that fight that night against Michael Moore, former light heavyweight champion, former heavyweight champion, and Southpaw of all things, which is really difficult. Tell me about that fight, George. The commissioner told me just before the fight, look, uh, uh, the gloves have been chosen. They're Reyes gloves. They're called the punches gloves. Yeah. That's what people – and uh, Michael Moore demands that. you got to fight in Reyes gloves. He actually believed he was a puncher, and I was not. <laughs> you talk about a guy – he, and so I didn't have to look for him. He was standing there, go left and right, and I didn't have to worry about it. He believed that he would knock me out. He didn't know. At 45, that's what you need. You just mm-hmm. didn't need someone running and hiding from you. And uh, I went into the in a, a, a really a downhearted feeling was when I left the dressing room, they said the three knockdown rule has been waived, which meant if I knocked him down three times, he could still get up, right. run for me, and win the fight. I knew if I knocked him down, it would have to be permanent. And so the the, the stage was set for an upset. Well, and it mean, was it was a. Well, I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, no, no. I, I already know what I was going to say. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was just amazing listening to Lampley and and Michael Moore doesn't buy it. You know, he's like, oh, George said he set this all up. That's BS. I mean, clearly watching that fight as you slowly set up that that left right that one two. And as you say all the time, you just, oh, that one was off. Let me just lower this one a little bit. I mean, you could see. Punch as- for his chest, right? Uh, yeah. Yeah, you it- know, look, yeah, I uh, hit right on, hit him with the right right on top of the head a little bit, right uh, above the eye. Now, so let me lower it a little bit. That would be right where uh, the bottom of his nose would be. And that's where, and I said, oh, let me lower it. And then I look at the film, he thought, Man, it happened right quick, but it doesn't happen like that when you're a ring. Right. In the ring, it's like you have all that time to think. And uh, I practiced night and night, and it was sad because I, sometimes I'd cry because I'd have to take the power off my jab to throw that right hand. And for years, all I did was practice powerful jab. And it, it bothered me with Holyfield. I'd hit him with the jab, and I'd knock his head too far away to hit him with the right hand. <laughs> <laughs> so, but this time, I had to cry. Nobody knew about it but me. Interesting. Tap with the left and throw the right. And that was Michael Moore. Yeah. Michael Moore. I spent uh, some time with Michael Moore down in Miami after an, uh, a UFC event, George. And uh-huh. hung out with him for quite a while. And I talked to him. I asked him because I had watched that fight live. And I tell you what, my whole entire living room went nuts when you knocked him out. But uh, Mike, Michael was a pleasant guy, very pleasant guy, fun to talk to, fun to hang out with. And I asked him, I said, honestly, be be straight with me. How hard does George hit? He goes, you, dude, you have no clue how hard that man hits. You, you, just, you just cannot fathom. And I remember as a kid, 
having a Sports Illustrated. I used to collect Sports Illustrated, and on the back page, and I'm sure you remember this, there was a boxing glove printed on the back page with a dotted line around it, and it says, if you ever wondered how hard George Foreman hits, cut this out, tape it to a brick wall, and run into it face first. (laughs) (laughs) You remember that? Ah, I sure would like to see that, though. It was amazing. (laughs) I didn't do it, though. I didn't want to find out. Uh, And Mo Hammett was the only one I remember I hit him. Uh, Must have been about the fourth round, because I'd been hitting him anywhere in the corner. Then he third round. And I hit him real hard in the side. He looked at me and said, I'm not going to take this from you. And he started to come at me, and he said, forget about it and cover it up. <laughs> like, he, he said, no, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do that. Did he, did, he, he knew to pull back the reins and not brawl with you. Yeah, and I remember at the bell, when the bell rung, he looked up and said, I did it. I did it. And I looked at him and said, he, he did it. He made it. And <laughs> wow. we were both in shock. Well, George, guy, I'm sorry, go ahead. That was a brave one. Okay. Is there is there anything that you want to uh, to uh, talk about as far as your ministry or anything like that before we let you go? Oh, no. The ministry is your life. You got to talk about it. It ain't much of a ministry. <laughs> okay. Me, okay. And I, I, like I that. have to but ask. I'll, I'm I sorry. appreciate speaking with you guys. No, we, we appreciate this, George. This has been we an love, absolute. We love people. Complete uh, honor. Joy is people. Well, before we let you slide, I do have one question I have to ask you. After after losing to Muhammad and how heartbreaking that was to come back that many years later, we've all seen it. After you knocked out Michael Moore, you dropped to your knees. What I mean, obviously you were thanking your Lord and Savior, but what was what was your actual what was the other thought process of of once you did it? Like like Jim Lampley said, it happened. He knew it's strange in Africa. I lost to Muhammad Ali, and I was sitting there, and some of the people who had thought I was so tough walked up to me, and one lady in particular, she said, don't worry, George, you'll get it back. Mm-hmm. I wanted to say, 20 years later, though? <laughs> <laughs> hey, better late than never, and you literally changed the narrative. Better, on- late, better late than ever, you know, than never. And I said, then that I said, you know, I never made reference to religion and all of that, pointing to the sky and all those things. But this time I said, God, if I win this one, I'm just going to get on my knees and be thankful. And I did it. That's well, why. George, we are absolutely thankful. Champ, any final words to Mr. Uh, heavyweight, former heavyweight we're champion just, of the world? Hey, we're, yeah, we're just very thankful that you took the time to speak to us. Little guys, George, thank you so much. And, and enjoy your, your time down there in Houston. Tell everybody we said hi. Okay, and tell them uh, old Patrick Hutton set it up, my friend. Yes, Patrick. he did. He's thank a good you. man. Thank you, Thank Patrick. you, sir. Thank you. This is this All right, is, ladies and gentlemen. Yeah. Former gold has, medalist. Former yes. two-time heavyweight champion. I'm losing my freaking mind <laughs> right now. You're excited. Well, we've only got a few seconds here, so we just want to thank you for joining the first installment of Everything Combat because life is a fight. I'm Pat Militich. Jeffrey for Wilson. my broadcast partner, Jeffrey Wilson, we are out of here. Peace. Enjoying his best round of the fight here in round 10. There's a right oh, hand. Man. Down goes Moore. He's flat on his back. He may not get up. Not maybe. He's not moving. Could be about to lose the heavyweight title. I don't believe this. John Cortez pulls off the cow. It is over. Oh, and John Foreman has pulled off the miracle that no one thought possible. The winner, and once again, heavyweight champion of the world, Big.